This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Friday the 5th of March and given it's now into the second year of Coronacast, I'd better give you the year. It's 2021. It's still 2021, even though time is both flying and travelling at a snail's pace. But Norman, one of the things that we keep hearing about over the past few weeks and months is variants. So we... We were all very um, critical of Donald Trump when he was talking about the China virus and the Wuhan virus, but then since then we've been talking about the UK strain and the South African strain, and then yesterday or this week we've been hearing about a Russian variant that's popped up in Queensland. So firstly, what does it even mean? And secondly, do we need a better way of naming these virus variants? Well, we've got a way of naming them. It's just it's pretty obscure. So the Russian variant, so-called, is you know, has the numbers 317 at the end of it. And it is a bit unfair naming them according to where they were first noticed or discovered. So Britain, South Africa, Brazil, um, New York, California, Russia. And it's, it's not very helpful at all because it just sparks fear. Yet a new variant, what does it actually mean? There's lots and lots of variants. And if I can take us back just a little less than a year, is that even then there were variants developing and people panicking about them at that point. And the Bedford lab, which was really one of the first labs to get into sequencing um, the, the variants and tracking them globally, they found that, in fact, there was very little change in behaviour between the variants. It was more that people changed the behaviour, but not the virus. And that's only recently changed. And it's only changed with... Uh, you know, a two or three variants. So it's changed with the South African variant. It seems to probably be more um, contagious and certainly more vaccine resistant. The Brazilian variant, we still don't know enough about that, but that looks as if it's more contagious and certainly also looks as if it could be vaccine, partly packed vaccine resistant. The UK one, it's more about contagiousness and um, the American ones so far, we're just not sure what their behavioural change is. So more and more we're seeing variants. But for every one of these variants you're seeing, there are lots and lots of other ones which simply track the evolution of the virus and don't really mean anything. And reportedly, this variant, which is 317 being called the Russian variant, uh, just seems to be one of these variants which is being thrown off by the virus through replication and probably doesn't mean very much at all. So one of the other pieces of lingo that we've been hearing is this idea of a variant of concern. And some of the naming conventions have VOC in them as well. There's like there's the B117 type naming convention and then there's other naming conventions, which just makes it even more confusing. What makes a variant a variant of concern versus just a variant of not concern, just curiosity? Yes, I'm not sure that that is actually standardised internationally, but it would just mean that there is evidence that it's transmitting more than other viruses, muscling other viruses out the way. So, for example, the UK variant has muscled other variants out of the way. It's presumed to be more contagious, but probably less contagious than we originally thought. The Brazilian variant, we've talked about it on Coronacast, it seems to be infecting people who were previously infected with the, well, let's call it the Wuhan variant, which is really the original virus to come out of China. And the South African variant is also almost certainly able to reinfect from the previous one, which also, and there is evidence of reduced vaccine efficacy. It gets this concern label when there's evidence that it is behaving differently and potentially dangerously. 
We've got Tom asking about strains and variants, and Tom's saying, what's the likelihood that you could be simultaneously infected with two different variants of COVID-19? Because it sounds like Tom's heard of a paper that there was a patient in Brazil or a couple of patients in Brazil identifying as positive to more than one variant at once. Well, if the immune system doesn't cover the first one, it's perfectly possible to have two um, at the same time. I'm not sure I've seen any papers on this or or peer-reviewed analysis, but Theoretically, it is absolutely possible. And then a different kind of question from John about needles, because we're talking a lot about jabs, shots, injections. It's a bit of a triggering thing if you don't like getting vaccinated. Uh, With the idea of needle needle phobia, John's saying it's been reported that at least one in 10 suffer some kind of mild or severe form of needle phobia. And perhaps that this might mean that people won't get vaccinated. Do we have any strategies or suggestions for people who suffer from this? So some people have a needle phobia that's so severe, it really does interfere with their clinical care. So for example, if you've got a needle phobia and you've got cancer and having chemotherapy, this, you know, a needle phobia could potentially end your life sooner because you're, you're not accepting treatment. Although there are techniques for this, such as putting in long, long-dwelling catheters. So there are little things that you can do, which is don't look at the needle. I, I personally don't look at the needle. Part of that is that I'm, I'm kind of anxious on behalf of the anaesthetist or the doctor doing it, hitting the vein, because I remember what it was like as a junior doctor, and I don't want to watch their nervousness. But people with serious needle phobias can see a psychologist, and you can get desensitization therapy for it, which apparently is quite effective, which is a bit like spider phobia. It slowly exposes you to the idea of a needle and de-escalates the anxiety you feel. It takes a few weeks, but it does work. And it's important not to transmit that needle phobia to your children. So, you know, when your child goes for an immunization, if you've got needle phobia, it's probably best giving it to your partner, giving the child to your partner to take into the doctor to get it rather than you because you just don't want to transmit your anxiety. I would love to hear audience suggestions on how to deal with needle phobia because as John says, it's really common and it can range from mild anxiety like Norman and I do the same thing. I like to look away and I wiggle my toes to distract me from the needle going in. But I know that people find it debilitating. And if you've got tips, send them in abc.net.au slash coronacast and we'll see if we can uh, spread the love and help people deal with it. And then, Norman, a clarification. We were talking the other day about the efficacy rate of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a recurrent topic on Coronacast. And uh, we've just had someone who's asking us to clarify some of the numbers that we've been throwing around. So like many Coronacasters, You know, this person really knows what they're talking about. I was using shorthand to say average, and they're absolutely right. It's not an average. So we're talking here about the 12-week space between Astra immunizations and what is the efficacy. And I said it was an average of 82% with a range of 60% up to 90%. That is actually not what it is in pure statistics. It's the probability of where most people lie within the response to the vaccine. In other words, most people are likely to, according to the analysis, likely to lie at around 82% efficacy. So the, the data were not very pure. The people who got into that 12-week immunization were not randomly allocated. It's just a bit messy. So again, the 82% is a bit messy too. It's the probability. What's the likely, most likely probability in terms of an efficacy response, and the likely probability is about 82%. But it could be 90%, and it could be as low as 60%. But they've plumped for 82% on statistical analysis. I, I look I look forward to my score from all the Chronicast statisticians. No matter how you cut it, for someone who's like, is this vaccine going to protect me from severe disease or death? It's a pretty good odds. 
And a piece of feedback from Owen. Owen works in nuclear medicine and was listening to our guest on the 2nd of March, who was Marion Kaner from Western Health in Victoria, and we were talking about the really stringent measures that they're taking to preserve every drop of the Pfizer vaccine that they're giving out to their frontline workers there. And Owen says the techniques for preparing the vaccine were techniques that they use every day. Multi-dose vials are standard in nuclear medicine and the nature of radioactive decay means you have to extract every last drop. It can be very tricky, particularly if the vial is evacuated. We use some albumin tet injections. I don't know what that means. But basically, um, Owen says the techniques took them a few weeks to learn properly and a few months to get good at. So thank you to all those people who are delivering those vaccines uh, in Victoria and all over Australia. And albumin is a, is a protein often used in intravenous injections. So Norman, we've got a minute or so left. Let's do Quick Fire Friday. Okay, fire away. We've got Jennifer saying, what is the composition of the Sputnik vaccine? That's the one out of uh, Russia. I ask as it is a vaccine currently being used in Argentina where I live and work. Thanks for listening, Jennifer. Yeah, absolutely. Sputnik vaccine is a viral vectored vaccine like Astra and Johnson & Johnson, where it uses an adenovirus, this is like a cold virus, to take the genetic information into the cell. The Sputnik vaccine uses two different adenoviruses between the two doses. So the first dose is different from the second dose, just in case you develop antibodies to the actual adenovirus, which we've talked about many times on CoronaCast. Denise is saying, how will the flu injection affect the COVID-19 vaccine, if at all? Nobody knows the answer to that question, which is why they're saying you should separate it by two weeks, just to be sure. Novavax is talking about developing a combined flu and COVID vaccine for the future. But if you have the COVID vaccine, wait two weeks for the flu, or if you had the flu, wait two weeks for the COVID-19 vaccine. Matt is saying case numbers in Brazil are on the rise again and the death toll is the highest it's ever been. Could this be another worse variant of concern or is something else at play? Well, it's the new variant in Brazil almost certainly starting to muscle in and people are being infected. Whether it's more deadly than the original virus is unclear at this stage. If you look at the British variant, the UK one, the B117, it was more contagious and now actually is believed to be more virulent as well. So it could be true of the Brazilian variant. We just don't know enough about it. And a different Matt, speaking of things muscling in, is waiting to hear if Super Swan is back pumping iron. I assume that this person is talking about you going to the gym, Norman. Yes, I have been going back to the gym. I've been going back to the gym now for probably a couple of months. Well, you get a gold star for effort. And so do all of you who sent in questions. Keep them coming, abc.net.au slash coronacast and mention coronacast so that we can find them. Have a truly wonderful weekend and we'll see you on Monday. See you then.